0: doing more literature? Yep. Literary coordinate systems? Zone, so what? So I'm, gra- I'm writing an
1: equation for a strike zone, so, you know. In you know, softball? I'm, yeah. The elf was terrible yesterday, so I'm venting, I guess
2: to be a math. Oh, yeah, I saw you on one of those posters in the hallways for softball. Yep. Yeah. It's a very, very large poster in Jasmine. <laughs> 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 it's hilarious. Uh, it's It was in my residence hall, actually.
0: So, yeah, they put them up everywhere, and you had a double header yesterday? Yep.
2: Yep, we're 8-0, which is the best part that brings off the program has we
0: had. That's great. So, but you're still angry at the young.
1: His strength zone was time-dependent. It should be well, just, it should be. you missed a
0: lot of classes, but it's okay. <laughs> it's not true. too late. Billion's um, <laughs> going to sit in today because he doesn't have a class and he is a um, fan of the intonations oh, so, ed. That's what we're talking about today. Sorry, that we're talking about today. Partly, yeah. Um, um, so, you know Tapara? No, uh, do, who did you? You know, you know Nicole. I do. Um, this is no. Ryan, Max, Meg, Ariel, Olivia, and yes. Tafara, and this is Julian. Yeah, hey, living in the same uh, German. Oh, you are. Yeah. You and Olivia are in the same. Not, no? Oh no. Okay. Man. <laughs> You've done that enough. Genug Deutsch, as we say. All right, um, Max, did you want to say something? You had a look of. Here's what I want to talk about. Oh, I would love to talk about more
2: time travel, but that was
0: the Okay. Well, in a funny kind of way, Wordsworth is also about time travel. Ooh, that was such a good segue because it's true. It's good because it's true. Um, all right. What I thought we would do... So everyone has now read the first two books of the Prelude, is that right? Okay, what I thought we would do is start with the Intimations' Ode, which we're going to do the whole of. I'm not sure we'll finish it today, but we might. But the Intimations' Ode was written and abandoned. That is, Wordsworth wrote the first four stanzas of the Intimations' Ode, and then he gave up. And he gave up because what he was trying to do in the poem... He found himself unable to do what and what he was trying to do and what he was unable to do was something that is characteristic of Wordsworth and of poetry of romantic poetry and afterwards which is that trying to write a poem is a way of trying to think yourself out or write yourself out or get yourself out of some sort of mental or spiritual crisis. So that's not something invented by the romantics. There are earlier poems that do that, but it's really in romantic poetry that what you have and what makes romantic poetry characteristic of modern poetry and the root and source of what we think of as poetry since then, on the whole, is that it's poetry which is seeking to do something for the poet. It's not poetry as a kind of artifact, but poetry as a kind of act. So we, so drop the artif. From artifact and you get act. That poetry—it's not that good a pun. It's not that good. No, I, was, just wondering not that good.
2: That, I was wondering if that's like an actual. No, they're <laughs> not
0: related to each other. They're—they're. They're, it was just a stupid way of making that point. But <laughs> right. you make points stupidly when you want people to remember them. Because yeah. And they remember the stupid thing you said, and then they remember the thing you said. So, the idea is that if you look at something like 18th century poetry, which some of you um, know fairly well, The a whole lot of 18th century poetry, early 18th century poetry, is about its extraordinary cleverness. And that cleverness is ultimately you could call it artifactual. That is that ultimately what you get in a whole lot of 18th century poetry is a display of the amazing connections that you can make in language between things the amazing things you can do with language it's not saying that, that 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 poetry doesn't say amazing things because it does but it's it is saying that the act of writing is not itself what those po- what what those poems are about the written poems and the way they work if you take something that some of you will know like the rape of the lock the point about The Rape of the Lock is partly that the poem itself is a game like the game that it describes, and being a game like the game that it describes, it shows as well as narrates what it's about. If you take something like Paradise Lost, though, and the invocation of Book Three of Paradise Lost, you get something which is proto-romantic. That is to say, you get Milton calling upon the muse to inspire him (coughs) to write the poem, Which is a classical trope It begins with Homer, as we've said before Calling upon the muse to inspire him To write the poem But for Homer, the invocation to the muse Is not ultimately the subject of the poem It's not even slightly the subject of the poem The subject of the poem is the Trojan War Or the subject of the poem is how Odysseus gets home It's not Homer calling upon the muse and hoping to be heard. Whereas the invocations of Paradise Lost are Milton calling upon God for inspiration, partly because that inspiration would be a proof of the existence of God or of the character of God. So that the invocation of the muses in Paradise Lost, one way of describing, it, we talked about it a little bit when we looked at book one, But if you remember the invocation of book one of Paradise Lost, it's of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into the world and all our woe. So right there in the third line of Paradise Lost, you get a first-person formulation, the word our. That is that Milton isn't telling a story like the story of Hector and Achilles which occurred a long time ago on a peninsula far away he's not telling a story like the story of Odysseus which also occurred a long time ago and um, on an island far away he's telling the story of how the world in which we readers and I John Milton live how that world got to be the world that it is and a world in which writing the poem would say something about how the world is. That if he's inspired by God, if he can write this poem, if he can justify the ways of God to men, that is in part because of the kind of presence that God has in the world. And the kind of presence that God has in the world for Milton is an inspirational presence, which is to say a linguistic presence it's the word of God in the beginning was the word and the word was God which is to say ultimately a poetic presence so that Paradise Lost is partly about what the fact of poetry says about the existence of God not what the content of the poetry says but what the very fact that there is poetry can say About it And that is what Blake picks up for Milton That's what the poetic genius is The very existence Of the poetic genius Is of the most Important theological And philosophical purport So As I say in Milton's Proto-Romantic, it's what the romantics Pick up for Milton And so If Wordsworth is writing a poem like owed intimations of immortality from recollections of early childhood what he's partly doing is seeing whether those intimations so l- let me just ask you what does the word intimation mean yeah mean like the
1: warning of like something to come
0: yeah warning is probably not quite the right word there but it, a warning can be an intimation but not all intimations are morning or warnings um A sign, a sign predicting the future, a sign predicting the future, not in any way arbitrarily. That is not um, a um, uh, bells ringing and lights flashing predicting that a train will soon pass the will soon cross South Street. That's because we agree. That, that, that when you see that sign, that's what it means. You should stop your car because a train is coming and because the barriers are going down. There's nothing in bells ringing and lights flashing that will tell you a train is coming unless you already know that that's what that means. If you didn't know what it meant, you wouldn't know what it meant. Intimations are a sense of the future that's going to come, a feeling for that future in the present, Something internal and interior that suggests that something is coming. So an intimation of immortality or intimations, plural, of immortality from recollections of early childhood then says that somehow our attitude towards early childhood, our sense of what the world was like which we had as children, and which we therefore have presumably lost as adults, if we had them and don't have them now, then they're recollections rather than present-tense experiences. Nevertheless, those recollections from early childhood, as recollections, become predictions or feelings for the possibility of immortality. Now, what Wordsworth means by immortality is not clear and maybe not important. Certainly late in his life... Sorry, you wanted to know what he meant.
2: Well, it's in the title.
0: (laughs) Yeah, but I think what's in the title...
2: it's not like, oh, what he meant by recollection is not important. What he meant by immortality is not important.
0: Yeah, because late in his life, he meant um, a Christian heaven. But that's clearly not what Blake means by immortality when he says not in the real man the imagination that liveth forever in that letter to Cumberland that we've talked about before. I'm an old man and, and very near the gates of death but not of the real man the imagination that liveth forever. So the crucial phrase, a way of putting this is to say it's not immortality that's it's important it's intimations of immortality and that would be something like the real man the imagination in Blake. That is the present tense figure who feels in the present all that it needs to feel all that he needs to feel in Wordsworth and Blake that is that it's an ability to to treat the present to valorize the present as a totality As all that matters So Do you need immortality To valorize that? It may be Or it may not be In a way it drops out of the equation It could be that there will be immortality And Wordsworth is certainly um, A conventional Christian believer More or less by the end of his life Which he certainly was not At the beginning of his life And not when he wrote The Intimations Ode but what matters is the sense that you have, the saturation, the rush, the, the total feeling for immortality that the intimations are giving you. At least think of that as, as what Blake would say, that the fact that he's going to die a month later is of no importance to him at all when he's writing the letter to Cumberland and feeling that the real man, the imagination, liveth forever. In a sense, it doesn't have to be him. It has to be the imagination, the poetic genius. And the moment that he's one with the poetic genius, that he's experiencing the poetic genius, that's the moment of transcendence. And part of what's transcended is time. And even though time doesn't stay transcended, Time always erodes the moment that we feel that we've transcended time. Even though that's true, it's also true that this eroding thing that erodes even transcendence is the very thing the transcendence has transcended. The transcendence knows of this erosion and not only knows it and not only in spite of this erosion, But fully cognizant of that erosion, it transcends time. That's the thing that it transcends. It transcends what what erodes it. And so Um. that is, again, I think you guys are used to it in Blake now, or you can see what it means in Blake. It means the same thing in Wordsworth. That's really the important insight. Wordsworth seems so different from Blake. And yet it means the same thing. Again, if you just go to We Are Seven, then what you have in We Are Seven is the little girl is, she's going to die too. First, her sister died. Then her brother died. She's going to die too. But that for her is not what's of interest. What's of interest is her saying right now in the present tense, we are seven. So that's one thing that Wordsworth will say, but then the erosion of time is what we looked at in A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal she seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly year. she seemed immortal but then time came and now she's rolled round in time, rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees and all that's left is the erosion of time so that's all that's left now is time eroding And those are the two poles that Wordsworth is dealing with in his poetry. And what you could say is that his poetry is a move towards the pole of the poetic genius when confronted with the antipodal pole of the inexorability of time and of decay and of death. And therefore, through the poem, the poem, the poet is attempting to go to the other pole. So, he tries to do that in the Intimation's Ode. And he writes a celebratory poem, which fails. And it fails at the end of stanza four. So, if you go... Oh, I guess it's not numbered in this version. Um, so in the first 57 lines. So he wrote the first 57 lines of the poem, and then he gave up. So let's look at those first 57 lines. Um, in other editions, in earlier, actually in later editions, um, the stanzas are numbered. Um, but it's fine that in the... You may have a numbered if you're looking at it on the web. Um, Mine is not. But, um, yeah, there, there are several different um, editions of the poem, and the title, Intimations of Immortality, is, is an added title. It comes a little bit later. But added
2: by him? By him, yeah. By
0: him. Yeah, he, whenever he republished his poems, he tinkered with them. Uh-huh. And one difference, we talked uh, last week about the 1805 versus the 1850 prelude, One difference between the 1805 and the 1850 probably... I mean, there are many differences. He tinkered and tinkered and tinkered, and all the tinkerings were towards greater belief in conventional religion. So in the later tinkerings, God is much more um, the friend that he needs than in the earlier 1805 version where it's not clear that he believes in God at all. Um, God is certainly not... um, what he's concerned with, and we saw the opening of Home at Grasmere, where he talks about how he passes Jehovah and his hosts unalarmed. That, for him, is not what the poem is about. Okay, so would someone read the first stanza? We'll go um, clockwise. Nicole.
2: There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream. Oh, wait. Should I start with?
0: Should I start with this? Sure. Yeah, my heart leaps up. Or is that what you... I don't know what you have at the start. Wait, the child... Yeah, the child is father of the yeah. man.
2: Yeah. The child is father of the man, and I wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. Wordsworth, my heart leaps up.
0: So just to tell you what that is, um, if you remember my heart leaps up, it's... Uh, well, we should look at it because, because this actually makes the point. So my heart leaps up, if you have um, the Norton, it's page 417... And I'll just read it to you. It's a very famous poem of Wordsworth. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So so hang on to that. My heart leaps up when I behold a rainbow in the sky. So was it when my life began. So is it now I am a man. So be it when I shall grow old or let me die. And then the three lines. The child is father of the man And I could wish my days to be bound each to each, by natural piety. Really? Yeah. No kidding. I was a roadie for them once. Really? Yeah. Um, That's great. (laughs) So.
2: That's just a really famous phrase. I've seen it a lot. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, notice here what he's saying is that he feels now, his heart leaps up when he sees um, beautiful, natural objects. His heart leaps up, and that's great. He loves nature. So was it when my life began. He was like that in early childhood, to go to the title of the Intimations of Recollections of Early Childhood. I recollect that I was up that. So was it when my life began. So is it, present tense, Now I am a man. So be it, may it continue to be so in the future, when I shall grow old, or let me die. That is, if I ever lose this, let me die. (coughs) That's quite a strong curse he's calling upon himself. Let me always feel this way. Better I should die than not feel this way. And the curse is going to hit him. At least, that's what Shelley thinks. That's what Browning thinks in The Lost Leader. The child is father of the man, famous phrase. And I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety. So how is the child father of the man? What does that line mean? Yeah, Tavara. This
1: is really random, <clears throat> but I don't know. Um, if I connected to Blake Mm -hmm. like what we did about how like children I guess yeah the whole dialectical opposites thing about like the tonic whatever like do children come knowing already about life Mm -hmm. or do they discover it Mm -hmm. and I guess like there was an answer that was leaning more towards like how children are we should look to children when we get sort of disillusioned by life. To like find again the spark, Mm -hmm. I suppose. So yeah, so it makes sense that the child is the father of the man because the child is going to teach the man how to live his best life again.
0: Okay, so so yeah, that would be great that you look at a child, you learn from a child, um, and you will see this happening in the Intimation's Ode. There is another complementary possible meaning. Nicole?
2: Um, I don't know if it's a meaning, but like the line transcends time, kind mm-hmm. of, as we were talking
0: about. Okay, yeah, it certainly transcends time because it <laughs> reverses. Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins has a parody of this, a, a poem called a trio, a kind of poem called a triolet, where one line is repeated three times, and it goes, "The child is father... He actually misquotes it. "The child is father to the man." How can it be? The words are wild. The child is father to the man? No. What the poet did write ran, the man is father to the child. The child is father to the man? How can it be? The words are wild. So what Hopkins in his, in his joke is basically saying is everyone knows that parents are the parents of children. Obviously, that's what Wordsworth meant to say because that would be a really important thing to say. Um, and Hawkins knows what Wordsworth is doing, but he's, he's doing something fun, yeah.
1: And, like, yeah, there was also some, something you said about how Blake talked about, like, regeneration. Yes. Like, and how it's always, Good. like, the path. Good. And, like, the evolution, in a way. So it's like, oh, I forgot the exact words you used.
0: Yeah, no, it, um, generation versus regeneration. Yeah, generation versus regeneration. So
1: it's like, it's you it may not be a literal child and father. Yeah. But just a
0: way of doing things. But say you made this just into a proverb, into a literal proverb, just the Mm -hmm. simple, you know, do you guys know what a rolling stone gathers no moss means? Yes. What? Um, actually no. Does anyone?
2: (laughs) I thought it meant, like, you know, you
1: shouldn't be sedentary, you should keep moving. It's bad to
2: get moss on
0: you. Okay, so it might be, um, if you want to avoid moss roll, um... Some people think it means that. Other people think it means you're never going to get any moss if you keep rolling around. Um, So, um, you know, since we're talking about songs, um, Papa was a Rolling Stone. Wherever he hung his hat was his home. And when he died, all he left us was alone. No, you don't know that song? I'm not going to try to sing it. Uh, Sorry? I thought you were going to go for the Dylan. What's the Dylan? Like, a, well, like a, a complete unknown Yeah, yeah so that's another uh, Bad version of being a rolling stone So, it can mean You gather no moss And if you want moss, if you want a family If you want um, to settle down Then stop rolling Or it can mean if you don't want to be um, um, Lose all your initiative If you don't want to become um, Sedentary And You um, um, uh, without without um, um, initiative, you better keep it keep rolling. So it's one of those things. Um, what about the best is the enemy of the good?
2: The what is the enemy? Of the, best the best is, is the, the enemy, enemy of the, of the good.
0: Game. What's that recommending?
2: It's maybe I don't know, but I'm guessing maybe it's recommending like if you get too greedy and go for the best, you're not going to get the yeah. good. Like, yeah, ego. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's about,
0: yeah, watching your ego Yeah, but you could see another possibility Which is we want to be the best Good enough isn't good enough So the best is the enemy of the good
2: Oh, yeah <laughs>
0: Alright, so Now try to imagine What the child is father of the man Could mean As a proverb So not as a Blakeian interpretation, but just as a proverb Where would, When would you say something like that?
1: There are three other there are three other nails, like or the three
0: nouns. like there's man child, father, and man and right. child,
1: father,
0: and man so which one is metaphorical? father father it only makes sense if one of them if at least one is metaphorical um, probably <laughs> you and, and it makes most sense if only one is metaphorical then it has to be father so the child is father to the man what's it a metaphor for? What does it mean metaphorically, then?
2: Yeah. The child teaches man, and man grows.
0: Okay, so a line from Shakespeare is um, one character says to another, I thought you were dead. This is Henry IV, part two. And the second character says, thy wish was father to that thought. What does that mean? Thy wish. I thought you were dead. Your wish was father to that thought.
3: You wanted it to be true, so I thought it was
0: true. Yeah. So so father there metaphorically means is the reason is the cause of the result. So the child is the cause and the man is the result and father means that what the child is causes what the man is. Or to make it so
3: the children become
2: Grown
0: they, 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 they. So every every person you look at was a child, I and mean, child. Okay, so it's yeah that that um, children turn into adults, so children come first. So in that sense, it's like they're the parents. But it's also why did you send Junior to detention? What he did wasn't so bad. And you say, "Well, Mrs. McGillicuddy, the child is father to the adult." or the child is parent to the adult. So why did I send Junior to detention? You don't want him
1: to end up being a horrible man.
0: Yeah, so whatever he is now, he's going, is going to determine what he is in the future. So you intervene in childhood because the child is father to the man, or father of the man. So what happens to you in childhood is going to determine what you become as an adult. And so when he says, I could wish my days to be bound each to each by natural piety, what he means is all children should be encouraged to have their hearts leap up when they behold rainbows in the sky. Because then when they grow old, through day after day being bound each to each by natural piety, they will continue to be that kind of person. If you teach children art and music in elementary school, they will be different and happier and better persons than if you don't. That would be a modern version of this, because the child is parent of the adult. What you become as a child will determine what kind of adult you will be, and that's why early education matters so much. So that could be a place where you would use that proverb. So that's what he's saying and hoping In My Heart Leaps Up Now he writes this ode Where he's also hoping that will happen And it seems like that Or let me die Unfortunately is going to come true So um, Ryan, why don't you now Read the first stanza of the ode proper Uh, Page 434
3: There was a time when meadow, grew and stream, the earth in every common sight, to me did seem appareled in celestial light, the glory and the freshness of a dream. It is not now as it has been of yore. Turn wheresoe'er I may, by night or day, the things which I have seen I now can see no more.
0: Okay, quick paraphrase, someone. You can paraphrase, too, if you want. He doesn't
2: see things as magical as he used to when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. It's not as um, purely, like amazing. Yeah. It wasn't a bodily experience.
0: Yeah, that everything when he was a child, his heart leapt up over everything, right? The earth and every common sight. There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth and every common sight what is the word "common" doing there? What does it mean? Natural sight, like yeah.
2: Nature, I guess.
0: Yeah, it, but "common" is probably has a stronger um, resonance than just natural. Trivial. Trivial, yeah. Um, you will remember in Hamlet that. Gertrude says to Hamlet that um, Thou knowest that death is common Over the death of Hamlet's father And Hamlet's still in mourning Even though he's, um, it's two months after his funeral And Gertrude is expostulating with him Thou knowest tis common And Hamlet's response is I, madam, tis common
2: oh, And I know what this means It has a, it has a dirty double meaning It does Wait, really? It doesn't. What dirty
3: double oh, means?
2: this is what my talking English teacher told me. She said that "common" also means prostitute. Yeah, but and that's so, not what. It, yeah. And so like he's calling Gertrude a prostitute for like sleeping with Hamlet's new dad.
0: That may be there somewhere, <laughs> but it what it what it most overtly means is my father is not a common person. So when you call a prostitute common a common troll, a common prostitute, what you're saying is that the prostitute's favors go to anyone. So common is the opposite of select, let's say. Common is the opposite of elite. And hence you have the House of Commons and the House of Lords. You have commoners and you have lords. And so common is basically it's everywhere everyone has it. So when you say the earth in every common sight, what you're saying is everything, everywhere. You know, even Waltham seemed appareled in celestial light. You know, it's not Paris; it's Waltham, and yet to me it looked like Paris um, because it was appareled in celestial light. So there. So who's using the word "common"? How, wh- who do you have to be to know what that word means? The adult. You have to be the adult. So right there. In that second line You can already see the difference The non-binding each to each Of the way he felt as a child And the way he feels now You can feel it, in fact, in the second word There There was As you can feel in the third word Of A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal The same distinction There was a time when meadow, grove, and stream, the earth, and every common sight to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. Um, do you remember where that comes from in Milton? Celestial light? It's the invocation of Book Three. Therefore, the rather thou, celestial light, shine inwards. So the celestial light is the muse that Milton is invoking in Book Three of Paradise Lost. And he's referencing that here? Yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: Is there like, uh, like a thematic link between this and how like, the Bible is structured? Go say more. So like the child is father, you know? mm-hmm. so it's like yeah because well the New Testament is it's like it's the, son the son is like sort of directing the New Testament right. and the father was directing the Old Testament.
0: Yes. Okay. Good. So one thing that Wordsworth is doing is completely, and this is what the um, opening of, of Home at Grasmere is saying, is that he's secularizing uh, things that he would say became religiousized by the Bible. That is that the, the, what, Wordsworth, what Wordsworth at this point in his life would say, what more recently Hannah Arendt has said, is that the reason that the symbol of salvation, and it's what Blake would say, the reason that the symbol for salvation in the Bible is a child is because a child is a really good symbol for salvation. Before you have religion, you have the idea that the birth of a child is cause for transcendent celebration. And then the New Testament um, gloms onto that and makes it the religious moment par excellence, Unto Us a Child is Born, where, because it's the right, it's it's the perfect matrix for making that kind of really intense argument. So Wordsworth is re-secularizing that idea. So, it seemed appareled in celestial light, and that's another word In line three. So in line one we have was. In line two we have common. In line three we have seen. Three words indicating the difference. Appareled in celestial light. The glory and the freshness of a dream. And then it is not now as it has been of yore. No. Yeah. (laughs) So what's the crucial word there? Yore. Yore. Your is the past. Mm -hmm. And what's the other crucial word then? Mm. Now. Yeah. It is not now as it was then. Uh, Slumber did my spirit seal. Where does that now appear? No motion hath she now. No motion hath she now. No force. So it's the difference between the present and the past. There's a poem by John Ashbery, which... um, it's a one-line poem he wrote he wrote a series of one-line poems where the titles are longer than the poems so the title of this poem it's like Wordsworth in a line the title of the poem is I had thought things were actually going along pretty well and then the single po <laughs> the line the single line in the poem is but I was mistaken so the title gives you the past and the poem gives you the present things look pretty good nope. That's it is not now as it hath been of yore, or as it has been of yore. Turn wheresoe'er I may. What does that mean? Turn wheresoe'er I may.
2: Wherever I go.
0: Wherever I turn, it's stronger than go. It's like he's looking for something. He's turning and turning and turning, looking for things. Night and day he's looking for them. Turn wheresoe'er I may by night or day, the things which I have seen. I now can see no more. So he repeats the now at the end of the stanza. Okay, Max, go on.
3: The rainbow comes and goes,
0: and lovely is the rose.
2: The moon doth with its delight, uh, doth with the light. Look round her when the heavens are bare. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. The sunshine is a glorious birth, but yet I know, rare I go. That's There hath passed
0: away a glory from here. Okay, so what's the crucial word in that stanza? Like now or not or was but
2: yet.
0: Yeah, but yet. So he's trying. Turn where so ere I made by night or day the things which I've seen, I now can see no more. So where does he turn? He turns to the rainbow. What used to happen to him when he saw a rainbow?
2: His heart would leap.
0: Yeah, his heart would leap up. But now, the very curse that he called upon himself, upon himself, in My Heart Leaps Up, now it looks like that curse is descending upon him. So the rainbow comes and goes. No big deal. And lovely is the rose. Well, that sounds like maybe he still is seeing loveliness. And then a beautiful description. The moon doth with delight look round her when the heavens are bare. So the moon is looking at the stars or the clouds far away and you can feel the poetry building. Waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair. That might possibly sound a little bit like an anticlimax are beautiful and fair. It's like he's gigantic and big (laughs) or it might not you may think that that's actually a beautiful phrase beautiful and fair waters on a starry night and notice how he's getting the starry night from the moon so the rainbow, the rose, the moon waters on a starry night are beautiful and fair and then it's the next morning the sunshine is a glorious birth so it's like a car trying to catch it's like he's trying to start the engine of his appreciation of celestial light, but yet I know where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. So, so it turn, where so turn where I may, he hasn't gotten anywhere. But yet I know where'er I go, that there hath passed away a glory from the earth. So it used to be there all the time. He's writing this poem. It's like he's trying to get it back. And he's failing. So we have another now. Meg.
2: Now while the birds sing a joyous song, and while the young lambs bound, as do the tapers sound, to me alone there come a thought of grief. A timely utterance gave that thought relief, And again I am strong. The cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. No more shall grieve mine the season wrong. I hear the echoes through the mountains strong. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep, and all the earth is gay. Land and sea give themselves up to jollity, and with the hearts of May, doth every beast keep holiday. Thou child of joy, shout round me, let me hear thy shouts, thou happy shepherd boy.
0: Okay, great. So that sounds pretty good. So what happens then in the third stanza? So we've gone in the first two stanzas we go from then to now what happens in the third stanza? He tries to recapture Yeah He tries to recapture the glory Meg, what were you going to say? He's
1: going it's sort of a return to
2: finding the beauty and the joy that he's talking about that happened then like it's still now that he's talking about a
0: return of the maybe not magic but of some of the yeah so it's Instead of thinking of then and looking at now, what he's trying to do in the third stanza, and remember, he's trying to get his mojo back. That's what this poem is about. (laughs) So, now, while the birds thus sing a joyous song, so they are singing a joyous song, so he's trying again. And while the young lamb's bound as to the tabor sound, the tabor is a little drum that a shepherd boy would be drumming on to, um, to, to keep the lambs, basically to, to herd the lambs. So now, and while the young birds bound us to the Tabor, while all this was happening, to me alone there came a thought of grief. So I was the only wet blanket in this world of celestial light. To me alone there came a thought of grief. It's a fantastic line. It's one of the lines that people always remember from this poem because that sense of a sudden stabbing thought of grief that happens to you in the midst of the crowd, in the midst of a party, in the midst of joy, and that sets you apart. That's what he's describing here. And then a timely utterance gave that thought relief. So what do you think that line means? Much debated line. A timely utterance gave that thought relief. Yeah. I think,
1: uh, like some earthly pleasure that sort of compensates for the grief, but momentarily. Okay. Like I don't know, thinking like smoking a cigarette. Mm Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, smoking weed. (laughs) Or. Or anything, just like a distraction. Mm-hmm. Because I think like utterance can also, well, like the etymology of the word is utter, mm-hmm. which is like it's just like utter nonsense. Okay, okay yeah. yeah. I'm
0: thinking. But it also means to speak. To speak. Of. Like he didn't utter a word. No. Yeah. So a timely utterance would mean um, saying something just in time or saying something at just the right time gave that thought relief. What does it mean to give relief to your thoughts? Say them out loud. Say them out loud. is
1: it like the geography? Like relief rainfall.
0: Oh, it... Um, or or topography? Yeah. A relief map? It can mean that... What relief means is for something to come up, um, to rise up. That's, that's, um, in French, it's révéler, Um, relevé, rather. Um, to come out of, to rise up from, and um, here what it means is I felt better, like relief from pain is feeling better, but literally it would mean it would mean something was said that allowed the thought to be expressed. So presumably he's the one saying it, and so what it probably means is to me there came a thought of grief. To me, alone, there came a thought of grief. And I wrote a poem about it. I I got relief from that thought of grief through a timely utterance, through writing a poem that is expressing myself by expressing the thought of grief in a poem. So that would be this poem describing what poetry, what he hopes poetry will do, which is if you feel sad, in crisis, depressed, needy, then what may aid you and help you is to write a poem. And that's, the, that's what we've been talking about, that poetry is itself a response which seeks to react to whatever it is that is causing the need to write it. The need to write a poem is a sign of the need that it comes out of, or the poem is a sign of the need from which it arises, Wallace Stevens writes, the poem is the cry of its occasion. So the thing that occasions the poem is the poem is the cry of the thing that causes the poem to be written. And the word cry there is a powerful word. The poem is the cry of its occasion. And here... Wordsworth is saying something similar. To me alone, there came a thought of grief, a timely utterance gave that thought relief, and I again am strong. So now I can cope and deal. I again am strong. The cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. So he hears nature. It's gorgeous. It's beautiful. The cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep. No more shall grief of mine the season wrong. I'm no longer going to be the one sad person in this gorgeous natural setting. And then you get really great writing. I hear the echoes through the mountains throng. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep. Another very famous phrase, the fields of sleep. And maybe we shouldn't try to interpret it, but just feel its power. The winds come to me from the fields of sleep and all the earth is gay, land and sea give themselves up to jollity and with the heart of May doth every beast keep holiday thou child of joy. And here he's talking to, um, this child is going to return but he's the one who is beating on the table, on the drum. Shout round me, let me hear thy shouts thou happy shepherd boy. So it looks like the poem has worked. And so he then gives us stanza for Ariel.
2: You blessed creatures, I have heard the call, you to each other, make a sea. I see, the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee, my heart is at your festival, my head hath is coronal, the fullness of your bliss, I feel I feel it all. O oh, evil day, if I were sullen, while earth herself is adorning. The, the sweet May morning and the children are calling on every side. In a thousand valleys far and wide, fresh flowers, while the sun shines warm and the maid leaps up on his mother's arms, I hear, I hear with joy, I hear that there's a tree of many one, a single field which I have looked upon, both of them speak of something that has gone, the pansy at my feet, the, the same tail repeat, whether there fled the vision leave or is it now the glory of the dream?
0: Thank you. So, do you remember what saves the ancient mariner? I know we didn't talk about it except for, except for a minute or two. What but saves him? What saves him? He's, so everyone else dies. He kills the albatross. Everyone else dies. Death and life and death gain for him. Life and death says, I've won, I've won. He's all alone on the ship. There are these, all these ghost um, figures. And then he sees beautiful water snakes in the water. And do you remember what, what he says telling the story? He says that even they are like precious creatures. Yeah. And he said, um, I looked at them and I blessed them unawares. Yeah. And then he goes on, Surely some kind saint took pity on me, for I blessed them unawares. And so he sees them, and even though his life is horrible, he sees these living creatures and he does the opposite of killing the albatross. So he pointlessly, and for no reason, kills the albatross. Now he sees these sea creatures and he, his heart suddenly f- fills with blessing. And I bless them unawares. So that blessing of others who are not in his position, that sheerly unselfish blessing, that's what Wordsworth is trying to achieve here as well. Ye blessed creatures. So he's blessing them. This poem is going to go back to that, and in a lot of ways, it bears um, close comparison to the Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. But here's one particular way. Ye blessed creatures, I have heard the call ye to each other make. I see the heavens laugh with you in your jubilee. So... You're happy, nature is happy around you, and I'm there too. My heart is at your festival. My head hath its coronal. That is, I also have a crown of flowers at this festival, at this May Day festival. The fullness of your bliss, I feel, I feel it all. Coleridge in Dejection and Ode, which is his version of The Intimation's Ode. It also has the line, There was a time when though my path was rough, the joy within me dallied with despair. Um, Talks about looking at the moon and nature around him. And he talks about all these things so excellently fair. And then he despairs. I see, not feel, how beautiful they are. So that's Coleridge's summary of what Wordsworth is describing here in these first four stanzas. I see, not feel how beautiful they are.
3: I so, just have an urge to these lines, ye blessed creatures. Yeah. I've heard the call ye to each other make. I've heard the mermaid
0: singing each, each to each. Speech. Yeah, well Do you I not could, think they will sing to me. Nice. Um, and also I could wish my days to be bound each to each mm-hmm. by natural piety. Mm. Yeah.
3: But I think like I just the proof. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard yeah. the mermaid singing each, each to each. Each to each, I do not I've think. i the birds singing each to right. each. Yeah. I do not think they'll sing to me. Yeah.
0: Right. Yeah. Yep, he's going to be woken by human voices and drown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm sure that somewhere it's on Elliot's mind. Good. Nice. Yeah. So the fullness of your bliss. I feel, I do feel it. I feel it all. Oh, evil day if I were sullen. That would be terrible. If I were sullen. While the earth herself is adorning the sweet May morning and the children are pulling, the direct object of pulling is what? Fresh flowers. Fresh flowers. Yeah. Do you have calling in... Do you have yeah, yeah. yeah I, um, he revives it to calling, which is a better word. Um, so... While the earth herself is adorning the sweet May morning And the children are How do you know It's pulling or culling? Culling Culling, yeah And the children are pulling on every side In a thousand valleys far and wide Fresh flowers So the children are gathering these flowers On this beautiful day While the sun shines warm And the babe leaps up on his mother's arm I hear, I hear with joy I hear, and then what word? But But also a tree again the horrible, dreary trees. Yes. <laughs> yep. But there's a tree of many one. So what tree would that be? The, Reader. the Garden of
2: Eden. Yes.
0: Tree. Yeah. So this is the natural world version of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. There's this one tree. Of every tree in the garden I mayest eat Save one only, that thou mayest not eat of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that's the tree that Adam and Eve do eat of. So here we go. But there's a tree of many, one, a single field which I have looked upon. Both of them speak of something that is gone. So he really tries to cheer up really tries to get with the spirit not to mope on this beautiful May day he does it to himself and yet he can't but there's a tree of many one a single field which I have looked upon both of them speak of something that is gone the pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat what's a pansy? Flower A flower Common flower at his feet What is it in French? Anyone know?
2: Ponze mm-hmm. Wait, really? Yes
0: Yes, really Oh So, which means what? <laughs> to think Yeah, it's actually a noun P-E-N-S-E-E oh, does means to think? It, I
3: means think
0: it means thought Yeah Yeah, so the, it's, a, it's the same word in French Pensee is a pansy, and it is thought. So, Wait,
1: isn't verb
0: or verb? It... No, pensee is the verb, and pensee is the thing thought. P-E-N-S-E-E. So Pascal's famous book is called Pensee. That is his thoughts. But they're also the flowers of thought. There's a pun in the title. So pansy is from the French name for the flower, but the flower is a flower of thought. And remember, Wordsworth lived in France, so he knew French really well. He had a French lover. He had a child with a French lover. So he knows the etymology of this, that there was a thought of grief. Now that thought of grief is out in the world. The pansy at my feet doth the same tale repeat. And what's the tale? Whither is fled the visionary gleam. Where is it now, the glory and the dream? So that's where he stopped. Because the poem that he writes out of crisis, which is the sense that he can't find what he once saw, that his heart no longer leaps up, or that if it does leap up, there's something willful about it. Oh, look, a rainbow. Yay that he, can, he tries to write himself out of that. And he can't. And so he stopped writing the poem there. And he didn't publish it, he just put it away. Because the poem was a failure. It's not a failure as a poem. If he published those first four stanzas, they would have been great as a poem. Grim but great. Great. Lots of poems end that way. Wallace Stevens has a poem with a very um, promising title, no, um, no doubt. The Man Whose Pharynx Was Bad. Stevens' titles are the weirdest. And the end of that poem is one feels a malady here, a malady. That is, there's something wrong, and then the poem ends. One feels a malady here, a malady. And that's what we have here in the first four stanzas of the Intonation Zone, is I really am trying to write poems celebrating nature, feeling its power, leaping up, finding joy by writing poems about the joyfulness of nature, and I'm failing. I'm like Fell. All of these other things, you know, if you think of the book of Thel and the description of all these creatures on this glorious holiday, on May Day, they're like all the creatures in the Vales of Horror. They're like the drop of dew and the flower and the clod of clay. They're, and she's
2: the only sad one.
0: Yeah. And now it's Wordsworth who's the only sad one. So if he'd ended it here, it would have been his book of Thel. Remember, the virgin shrieked and ran back unhindered into the veils of horror at the end. So, here, he would have given up and just made do with growing up with the world being common. <clears throat> Alright, so, yeah?
3: I just want to point out, like, if he had to, like, publish this poem for some reason, if he had to, like, finish it, mm-hmm. um, it could structurally finish at line 50. Like, I lost the visionary gleam. Um, I regain it. I hear, I hear, withdrew, I hear. Mm -hmm. Um, Even though that would obviously be a bad poem. Yeah. Um, But it would, like, kind of work. And and that's kind of the same structure the entire poem has, but with the necessary difference that it isn't I hear. It's like I hear differently. Right. Um, And so I think that, you know, putting it in the drawer, adding the seven lines you know it's just a marker of like this poem is incomplete the dialectical progression is isn't moved through yet um yeah it's like because it's like in a way it's like i have a poem here but i have to like tack on seven lines where it's like the poem has to go someplace further
0: yeah because it's not true Mm -hmm. so the poem this is i try to um Cure myself of my despair By getting up to here But I failed And I'm just going to write the seven lines Acknowledging that failure And then put it in the drawer Okay, so this is 1804 We've now read the poem Actually 1802 or 1803 We've now read the poem early Now let's go to the prelude We'll go back to the intimations But not today because he is at the same time writing what is essentially um, a very, very long version of the same dynamic as the Intimations Ode, which is the Prelude. And the Prelude is a prelude to the work that he never wrote, but which we read some of. He wrote the first part, a long poem called The Excursion, which almost no one reads. Um, there was a semester here at Brandeis when I was teaching a course on Shelley and Wordsworth. There was a graduate seminar on Wordsworth and Shelley, and John Burt was teaching a graduate seminar on Melville, and there were students who were in both classes, and in the Shelley and Wordsworth class, we read Shelley's Revolt of Islam, which is his longest poem and is essentially a book-length poem, and... The Excursion. And in John Burt's class, they read Melville's endlessly long poem. I think it's the longest canonical poem in English, by far, uh, if you regard it as canonical, or the longest poem by a canonical writer in English. Um, Chlorel, which is like this thick, and by this thick I mean really long. And um, so there were students who, who were like, they're probably... A thousand people in the country who've read The Excursion, and a thousand people in the country who've read The Revolt of Islam, and a thousand people in the country who've read Chlorel, and um, there are a lot fewer people who've read all three, but it might be that a majority of them were at Brandeis that semester. A majority of the people in the country who've read all three were at Brandeis that semester. So the Prelude was going to be the introductory poem to Wordsworth's grand work which he planned to make the great work of his life, and which he only wrote part one of, and that's the part that Mary Shelley said, he's a slave, that we talked about. That they read the excursion, and um, they spent all day reading it, and then they said, he is a slave. And he never published the prelude, because he never finished the poem that it was going to preface, and so it's called the, it was called The Prelude by his editors after he died. So he died in 1850. He was 80 years old. He died in 1850. And after he died, his family published this poem, and they called it The Prelude to this unfinished work. Um, as you'll see, the title here is Poem Title Not Yet Fixed Upon by William Wordsworth Addressed to S.T. Coleridge. And that's because the fiction of the poem is that Wordsworth is telling Coleridge the story of his life. Coleridge has gone to Malta and he's away. And so Wordsworth is writing to him. When Coleridge got back, Coleridge went to Malta, I mentioned this before, in order to get over his addiction to opium. And it actually didn't work so well. Um, But when he got back, Wordsworth actually read the poem to Coleridge out loud over the course of a few nights. And then Coleridge wrote a poem about how amazing this poem was. Coleridge's poem about how great the prelude is is not such a great poem, but it's okay. It's not bad. So it's officially a poem whose addressee is Coleridge, or his best friend. And so he begins, it's a little bit like Tintern Abbey, which we didn't talk about, but which you should have read and which will... Talk about at least in bits and pieces if we don't do the whole thing as we go through the rest of Wordsworth. Um, but it begins, Oh, there is blessing in this gentle breeze. So, when there is blessing, let's say that it's 1805. It's not clear. He started working on the prelude in 1798, but we're looking at the 1805 version, and the 1798 1799 version begins much later in the prelude, and it's very short. It's the equivalent of about a book and a half of the finished prelude. It begins with the words, was it for this, which you will see come later in the 1805 prelude. So, oh, there is blessing in this gentle breeze that blows from the green fields and from the clouds and from the sky. So what's the first thing to notice? In the context of the Intimations Ode Yeah, so he's appreciating nature Um, What word from the Intimations Ode is echoed here? Blessing. Blessing Well, there's blessing in this gentle breeze And it begins with an O He's happy Oh, there's blessing in this gentle breeze Notice the present tense Not there was a time when every breeze had blessing. But oh, there is blessing in this gentle breeze. Great first line. Oh, there is blessing in this gentle breeze that blows from the green fields and from the clouds and from the sky. It beats against my cheek and seems half conscious of the joy it gives. So life is almost animate with spirit, with soul, with consciousness. It seems half conscious of the joy it gives. Oh, welcome messenger. Oh, welcome friend. So it's a messenger. It's a friend. A messenger of what? Got it? <laughs> well... How would how would a breeze seem like a messenger, in its in its, um, blowing from green fields and clouds and sky? I think you were saying it, Ariel. What makes it, what it's a messenger of? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh yes, nature. That's right. Oh, welcome, messenger. Oh, welcome, friend. A captive, greets thee. Coming from a house of bondage from yon city's walls, set free, a prison where he hath been long immured. So, who's the captive? Wordsworth. He's been a captive in the city, but now he's going back to the country. He's been immured. What does immured mean? Walled in. So, I'm finally out of the big city. Finally got away from the big city and am going out into nature. And I feel the breeze and its blessing and it seems conscious of the joy that I feel, the joy it brings. We know he feels joy because it's bringing him joy to feel the breeze. Now I am free, enfranchised and at large. What does enfranchised mean? anyone know it's yeah it's set free um, now I have freedom to be disenfranchised means not to have freedom now I am free enfranchised and, set, and at large may fix my habitation where I will I can live wherever I want I can float around nature like a cloud what dwelling shall receive me in what veil shall I excuse me in what veil shall be my harbour Underneath what grove shall I take up my home? And what sweet stream shall with its murmur lull me to my rest? So I'm going back to nature, and I can live anywhere in nature, and I will be happy. Where shall be my harbor? Underneath what grove shall I take up my home? Remember every meadow, grove, and stream. What sweet stream shall with its murmur lull me to my rest? the earth is all before me. Anyone recognize those words? I'm surprised that Nicholas actually didn't... Um... Did I tell you the guy who edited this was a student of mine when I was a grad student? I He was... I was his TA. Um, and then I saw him for the first time last November since he was an undergrad. He's now a professor at Cambridge, or at Oxford, I forget. At Cambridge, I'm pretty sure, what does it say? Um doesn't anyhow um, so and he's a really good maybe too good an annotator he gives you lots and lots of echoes but he doesn't give you the echo of this which he really should Um, the earth is all before me there's no reason you would know it um, unless you'd read paradise lost the whole of paradise lost But it's the description of Adam and Eve at the end of of Paradise Lost. Do you remember it? Mm, Not very vaguely. The earth was all before them, where to choose, and Providence, their guide. So they're being kicked out of Eden, but now the entire world is open to them. They may have lost Eden, but they get the entire world. Did you find it, Meg? Okay, that's okay. So now he's talking of himself, freed from the city, is a kind of happy ending, like the kind of happy ending of Paradise Lost. The earth is all before me. With a heart joyous, nor scared at its own liberty, I look about, and should the guide I choose be nothing better than a wandering cloud, I cannot miss my way. Oh, it does, you're right. Yeah, I just wanted to point it out. Okay, thank you. It just
2: captures the whole
0: Right, that's right. The world was all before them, where to choose their place of rest and providence, their guide, they hand in hand with wandering steps and slow through Eden, took their solitary way. So here his guide is not providence, but a cloud. And um, the earth is all before him as the world is all before them. And it doesn't matter where he goes. Should the guide I choose be nothing better than a wandering cloud, I cannot miss my way. Um, famous poem of Wordsworth I wandered lonely as a cloud so wandering like a cloud that's a way of just being where nature takes you I breathe again trances of thought and mountings of the mind come fast upon me it is shaken off as by miraculous gift is shaken off the burden of my own unnatural self the heavy weight of many a weary day not mine and such as were not made for me So that's all shaken off. I can breathe again. So you might say to yourself, How realistic is this? And I don't mean how realistic a wish is it. I mean, where do these words come from? What's the worth of these words? Never mind. Where do these words come from? He says, I'm walking and there's wind in my face. Is that true? <laughs> Why not?
1: No, because he's probably writing down. Because he's <laughs> writing.
0: And there's ink on his fingers. So he's saying this, but in some sense it's not true. It doesn't matter. It's like a soliloquy. We're fine with it. It seems like being ridiculously, being a ridiculous stickler to say, No, you're not. <laughs> But it, in fact, will turn out to matter. So let's just rush through to the end. Um, It's only 13
2: bucks.
0: (laughs) Long months of peace, at such bold word accord with any promises of human life. Long months of ease and undisturbed delight are mine in prospect. Whither shall I turn by road or pathway or through open field? Or shall a twig or any floating thing upon the river point me out? My course, enough that I am free for months to come, may dedicate myself to chosen tasks, may quit the tiresome sea and dwell on shore, if not a settler on the soil at least to drink wild water and to pluck green herbs and gather fruits fresh from their native bough. nay more, if I may trust myself, this hour hath brought a gift that consecrates my joy for I methought while the sweet breath of heaven was blowing. On my body felt within a corresponding mild creative breeze, a vital breeze which traveled gently on or things which it had made. It has become a tempest, a redundant energy, vexing its own creation. So something odd has happened, which is the breeze has stirred him up internally and he feels this famous corresponding breeze within him, which now feels as though it's vexing its own creation, something he's excited, but he's also, something is going wrong. "'Tis a power that does not come unrecognized, a storm, which breaking up a long-continued frost brings with it vernal promises. So winter is over, vernal promises of spring are coming." The hope of active days of dignity And thought of prowess In an honorable field Pure passions, virtue, knowledge and delight The holy life of music And of verse So he says There's a blessing in this breeze I feel an energy within myself It's vexing itself so it may not be Entirely controllable But it's a promise that I will now Sit down and write poetry And I feel great about that Then An odd transition Thus far O friend Did I Not used to make a present joy The matter of my song Pour out That day My soul in measured strains Even in the very words Which I have here recorded So he says This is as far as I got That day Turns out the first 55 lines in modern typography Would be in quotation marks Here's what I said that day Oh there is blessing in this gentle breeze So I poured th- myself out to the landscape And then I wrote down the very words that I said <coughs> To the open fields I told a prophecy Poetic numbers came spontaneously, and clothed in priestly robes, my spirit, thus singled out as it might seem for holy services, great hopes were mine. Mine own voice cheered me, and far more the mind's internal echo of the imperfect sound. To both, I listened, drawing from them both a cheerful confidence in things to come. And then whereat, whereat, being not unwilling now To give a respite to this passion I paced on gently with careless steps And came here long to a green shady place Where down I sat beneath a tree Slackening my thoughts by choice And settling into gentler happiness T'was autumn and a calm and placid day With warmth as much as needed From a sun, two hours declined toward the west A day with silver clouds and sunshine on the grass And in the sheltered grove where I was couched To perfect stillness On the ground I lay, passing through many thoughts yet mainly such as to myself pertained. I made a choice of one sweet vale whither my steps would turn and saw me thought the very house and fields present before my eyes, nor did I fail to add meanwhile assurance of some work of glory there forthwith to be begun, perhaps to there performed. Thus long I lay cheered by the genial pillow of the earth beneath my head, soothed by a sense of touch from the warm ground that balanced me Else lost entirely Seeing naught Not hearing Save when here and there About the grove of oaks Where was my bed An acorn from the trees Fell audibly And with a startling sound And um, Let's just go to the next page It was a splendid evening Top of the next page Line 100 Or 101 It was a splendid evening And my soul did once again Make trial Of her strength Restored to her afresh nor did she want Aeolian visitations, but the harp was soon defrauded and the banded host of harmony dispersed in straggling sounds and lastly utter silence. So he's ready to write poetry. He's ready for months of work. He's happy. Everything's great. He lies down. He decides he's going to go a little farther in these opening words, and he can't. The harp was soon defrauded. Couldn't write anymore. So this poem that looks like a celebration of spontaneous ability to write turns out to be a record of the delusion that he was now going to be able to write. The straggling host of harmony dispersed Sorry, the host of bandit harmony dispersed in straggling sounds, and lastly, utter silence. So the prelude begins as a poem about why he can't write. It's a poem about writing block. And it looks like it isn't, but it turns out within a hundred lines that that's what it's about. Why can't I write? Okay, we'll find out on Wednesday. But if you ask what it is that he couldn't write, the answer might be the intonation zone.